you know, uh, speaking of all systems, did you hear about that? Uh, that uh, you know, you talk about crazy hobbies. You know, the hobbies can really make you into a, a true cuckoo bird. You know, there's a fine line between uh, the casual hobbyist, you know, like a guy that likes to go out and uh, fish for uh, for a smallmouth bass occasionally when the season arrives, and then it gradually takes all of your soul. And uh, if you turn into the kind of cuckoo that I'm talking about, you then begin to take hormones to see if you can grow fins. If you can, in fact, become a smallmouth bass. And then, of course, the next step is to walk around and snap at plugs. And you have now made that transition. You believe you are a smallmouth bass. Now, of course, you you got to realize that almost all of the magazines that we have around with us today, Cosmo, uh, almost every magazine, Playboy, you name them, are filled with self-help on how you can become a totally different you. Would you like to be seven feet nine, weigh 82 pounds? Would you like to be 32 years younger? Would you like to be dynamic and a leader of men or women or and whatever you choose? Huh? You notice I give the open option there. You can uh, choose whatever you wish. If you find men a sexist term or if you find women a sexist term, you can opt for any damn thing you feel like, buddy. So uh, the point being that all these magazines are filled with this, this uh, fantasy world. 49 ways to totally change yourself into a completely different, exciting, dynamic you in just seven days, five minutes a day, and there is no diet involved. Oh, wow, they read this stuff. <laughs> it's a case of the smallmouth bass hitting the plug again. And uh, so uh, this is, you know, it's a continual running, uh, running thing in the magazines. We are filled with self-help. Europe, no. Europeans, you see, have long since over the thousands of years realized that man is a man is a man. A rose is a rose is a rose. But almost all Americans believe their current condition is temporary. It's temporary brought about by their own inability to deal with reality. And so they run between their analyst, their classes at the new school, their, uh, their tennis instructor, <laughs> you name it all. <laughs> and they hope one day they'll wake up and there'll be a cross between Jack Nicholas, Jane Blaylock, uh, Billy Jean King, Betty Friedan, uh, possibly a little Gloria Steinem thrown in there, uh, maybe even a little Ursula Andrews tossed in for good measure, and possibly even a good dash of Robert Redford, no matter what sex you are. So uh, <laughs> that's the American dream, friends. The real American dream. You know, we always talk about the American dream. Have you ever wondered what it was about? What is the American dream? Well, we use that phrase all the time. You never hear the Peruvian dream. You never hear the Yugoslavian dream. But you hear the American dream. And the American dream really basically is a belief in fairy tales. That you can, can that, there, that there's a wicked witch or a good witch. The good witch is writing this month's issue. Uh, who can convert you <laughs> into a totally new person. And you see practically all our magazines. You see the front, you know, the, the little headlines. 49 ways to get him to take you to Bermuda and you don't give him a damn thing in return. You're all a jaffy. Then there's a, another one that says, a, a new dynamic diet by a rare discovery made by a doctor who discovered a rare drug in Peru. You can lose 30 pounds in seven minutes and eat those same old big boys that you've always been eating. Huh? Well, this is, you know, it's magic. It's, a, it's the American belief in the conversion of the human being into a totally different person. And uh, 
This is not believed by anybody else outside of a very rare sect of Druids which uh, live on the Scottish-British uh, border who believe one day the great oak tree in the sky is going to come down and lay the sacred acorn on their congregation. Of course, that's a different group. You might like to join it. It may, it may fit your, your thing there. <laughs> but the, the belief, the instantaneous belief in a new you is probably as close to the true American dream as millions of housewives are scurrying to millions of night classes in clinical tennis bespoke psychology to <laughs> convert their life into one long continual song of ecstatic happiness. Millions of men are spending millions of dollars in millions of doctor's offices lying on millions of couches hoping to discover that key. And you know, I've known thousands of these people and I have never known one yet to convert. To what? To whatever they want to be. <laughs> to whatever the dream calls for. I have never known one. And maybe it's because we're an evangelistic people. I suspect that one of our candidates is playing off on that. The belief that he has been made a new person by one day, at one moment in his life, and everything changed. And now he's a perfect person. <laughs> oh, well, that's up to you. You've got to start learning to read the newspapers. You'd be surprised what's happening in this country of ours. Right, Moonies to the left of me, Moonies to the right. If you nary a drop to drink. Where I come from, when somebody hollers the word moon, he's talking about smoke, buddy. And it comes in a ball jar. Two dollars a gallon, and it'll make your party sink. Bum, ba -dum, bum. <laughs> but no, I believe this is the... You, you stand... I, I think this is the American dream. I think you stand in front of a newsstand where they've got all the magazines, and you see the constant dream of the Americans constantly appearing in the newspapers. And, of course, then there's the soap cult, the true slob papers. You know, a big headline that says, 45 intellectuals believe that Mars is the source of UFOs. Well, then you, you, know, you go inside to see who the intellectuals are. They're uh, people like uh, Phyllis Diller. Uh, you know, <laughs> Paris, 
on the back of wagons with banjo players and tap dancers selling magic elixir. Uh, you know, but it's because we believe in magic. We believe, uh, you know, we believe, uh, I guess it stems right from the very beginning of our, our, our great documents of uh, incorporation as a republic. This is, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Well, now, of course, the key line is that this is what they believe. They cannot state that as a fact. Belief is not to be confused with a fact. Now, you may confuse your beliefs with facts. Of course, that's called uh, dynamic archibunkerism. Who uh, <laughs> does not recognize the difference between a belief and a fact. But then, if you once accept that premise, you keep getting mad that you don't look like Robert Redford. Because this blows the whole thing, you see. Or you don't look like Ursula Andrews. This blows the whole concept of all men are created equal. So you have to, you have to figure out there is a magic place where you can become that way. Because they must have done it. And that's why continually we are saying, Ursula Andrews' own secret diet. So well, I see how she did it. <laughs> she wasn't born with the right genes, and you were born with those lumpy ones. That's a. <laughs> we don't like. You hardly ever hear anybody mention genes in this, you know, this world. Never. Oh no, that's a bad word. No, with the G, G E N E S, genes. Those little things, which uh, are immutable, and uh, damn near immutable anyway. And uh, like, uh, oh yeah. A friend of mine says he's a doctor. He's a famous internist. One night, and uh, in the secret of his soul, he confessed. I said to him, you know, we're talking about the dream that all Americans have of living forever, if they can get out on the track enough. He says, look, so I hate to tell you this. I said, go ahead, Perry. By the way, famous internist. And he is the head of internal medicine at one of the great institutions here in New York City. Name sent on request if you can prove that you really have a pancreatic problem. Over 21 and are a serious investigator. He says, I'll tell you. So when all is said and done, we don't know what works. I said, Barry, every month there's a new diet. Every month there's a new thing. Like, whatever happened, isometrics, they don't have them anymore. He said, yeah, well, another couple of months, people will look in their closet and wonder what the hell that jogging suit was for. Because a new researcher will prove that jogging shortens your life by eight-tenths of one percent. And he says, and I know several joggers who drop dead right in the middle of their jogging. And he says, so statistics are going to not bear out the jogging idea. I said, what's next, Perry? Oh, he says, Whatever some editor thinks up some magazine, that's what's next. He says, you know, remember when that when that biblical thing was said, man lives three score and ten? He says, that's just about it. He says, that, that was 2,000 years ago they put that down. I said, but Perry, you realize what you're telling me? He says, that's right. He says, it's the genes. <laughs> the genes. And the genes do not read the monthly magazines. It ain't the genes that go out jogging and play tennis.
I said, you know, he said, I'm going to tell you a terrible thing. I said, what is it, Perry? He says, you know, he said, uh, yeah, this friend that did this research, and he found out that fat people are just as long as skinny people. <laughs> I said, but Perry, this can't be. They don't, you know, oh, no, he says, I'm sorry. He says, you, know, you can't tell people this. Because people want a key. They want a key. He says, but the key in America is always connected with magic and youth. He says, we're the only country in the world that believes that the younger the politician, the smarter he is. He says, whereas the actual fact is, hey, probably nothing could be further from the truth. I said, Perry, this is a youth-oriented country. He says, yeah, well, that's true. He said, uh, other countries used to be aristocracy-oriented, but that was foolish, too. He says, other countries had matriarchies. That didn't work out so good. He says, and patriarchies didn't work. He says, we've got a juvenarchy now, and that's not going to work either. I said, what do you mean work? Magic solution to all. That's what I mean, work. So I said, Perry, let's open another tube work and forget the whole damn thing. This is W.O.R., New York, and I'll be back as soon as this shotgun blast of pitches goes whistling into the bushes. Yeah, well, you see, the trouble is you learn about these things when you least want to learn about them. I, for example, I had this ant, see, and uh, we all have an ant. Uh, every, every one of us has a various, uh, we are dealt at birth uh, a veritable bouquet of ants. Do you prefer aunt or ant? Which do you prefer? Ant or aunt? Well, I suppose if you love musicals, it's Auntie Mame. If you find musicals boring and dull, it's Auntie Mame. <laughs> Auntie Mame. But uh, nevertheless, uh, we're all dealt these ants, you see, or aunts, depending on how you prefer your, your uh, bad news. And um, I had this one aunt, like uh, many of us, I don't know whether you were ever blessed with a religious aunt. I mean, uh, truly a religious aunt. And uh, her name was Aunt Mary. And uh, Aunt Mary was uh, one of the outlying aunts. She wasn't really an aunt, aunt. She was somebody's second cousin, but she'd been absorbed into the family, this Aunt Mary, you know. And uh, Aunt Mary would occasionally visit us. And uh, whenever Aunt Mary came, she always carried with her tracts. You know, tracts. She loved to send little tracts to people. And she was forever hearing something on the radio or seeing something in the movies that offended her deeply. And that she would send them a track. I, I guess she figured one day she would convert W.C. Fields. You know what a tract is. I have to explain it to you. T-R-A-C-T. A tract is a thing that is handed out to you on the street corners. It's usually a little four-page thing that says, Have you discovered eternal life? Or it says, uh, have you paid for your sins? You know, that kind of stuff. See, a little thing there. And uh, I don't know of anybody ever, ever, who was converted by a tract. But uh, I know millions of tract givers. I mean, you know, I've seen them on the street, and I don't know what it is. I guess giving a tract is a, is a, is a positive action to many people who want other people to live as they live. You see, that's the whole idea of a tract. You be as me, and the world will be per peaceful and beautiful. Of course, this is the ultimate in ego. 
But uh, nevertheless, many people do not see it that way. They believe that they have discovered the, you know, the eternal secret of everything. And so they stand out on street corners and hand out tracts. And Aunt Mary, you see, was always handing out tracts by mail. And, uh, yes, and I, and I remember my mother, she said, oh, really hate to have Aunt Mary. Aunt Mary would call up my mother, you know, and, and I, I, I know whenever I'd get home from school, see, my mother had this long face and she sort of slumped at the kitchen table. I knew, you know, I had a sick feeling in my gut. I would have to put on the shirt that Aunt Mary gave me once for Christmas. Which, which incidentally was a true hair shirt. Uh, I don't know whether you've ever had a shirt that itched even while it was in the closet when you didn't have it on. Well, Aunt Mary was a specialist in itchy shirts. Of course, the hair shirt concept, which is an old religious idea, was very much in evidence with Aunt Mary. So, and the shirt incidentally was thick and, and, and scratchy and hotter than, than the hinges of hell, which is also part of the Aunt Mary concept of atonement for sins. So, uh, she gave me the shirt, see, and it was a sort of a grayish, really, a icky color. I mean, the kind of color that makes, no matter what complexion you got, look like something that the goat left behind. And, uh, yeah, you know, so, <laughs> it was a terrible shirt. But it was the kind of shirt, due to the fact that it was uh, made of this, uh, it looked like it was made of, of uh, recycled Brillo pads or something. It was the kind of shirt that was impossible to wear out. It had many uses. If, uh, if you ever ran out of, say, carborundum paper, you could take the shirt tail and you could, uh, you know, you could uh, take the varnish off of uh, off of furniture when you're refinishing. It was a great, a great shirt for that kind of stuff. And totally indestructible. That type of shirt cannot be. Uh, it was fireproof, I think. You could, you know, I once tried to throw it in a furnace. The damn thing jumped right out and grabbed me. So uh, you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna get by on that, Mary. So she gave both me and my kid brother one of these shirts. Well, my kid brother was less civilized than me because he was a kid brother. See, kid brothers always get away with being less civilized than uh, older brothers. This is why many older brothers in this world go around with a sad look in the eye. Because they, <laughs> they had to, see, they had to be civilized, whereas the kid that came later, they always, always just said, well, you know, yeah, he's, just, he's just a kid. See, he can get away with anything. And uh, it, it caused all kinds of problems that way. But Randy, see, he didn't have to wear the shirt. But my mother said, you're old enough, and, I, and, and uh, you be nice to Aunt Mary. After all, Aunt Mary means well. Oh, God, deliver me from meaning well people. Aunt Mary means well. Well, that meant that whenever Aunt Mary came over, see, she would come over, and she was also, like many people at handout tracks, she was also a food freak. They seemed to go together. She also had a house full of unbelievably smelly cats that also seems to be part of the syndrome. <laughs> I'm sorry if I'm offending you, but the truth always does cause your corns to hurt, right? So, uh, nevertheless, <laughs> Aunt Mary, I never, I, 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 that was one place I put my foot down. I flatly refused to visit her house on the rare occasions that a trek was organized to go visit Aunt Mary. Aunt Mary was continually visiting. And she did the, every year the same thing she would give to my mother as, as, as her Christmas present. She would give her a doily. Uh, these people often are great doily people, symbolic doilies, you know, with praying hands on them, all that stuff. Can you imagine a set of doilies with praying hands on your Castro? But uh, never... <laughs> I just give somebody some ideas, right? So anyway, Aunt Mary, Aunt Mary was, you know, she was really something else. So she, she used to send out these tracks, and what was more, she was proud of it. That's what always confused us. 
Aunt, uh, she would say things like, well, she said, my mother would say, well, what's new, Aunt Mary? Oh, well, I finally had to do it. That's, uh, you know, that's, I'm hiding under the, under the daybed there trying to get my shirt off, and, <laughs> you know, and I'd hear this talk. I always stayed out of her way, see. And, and she'd say, well, I finally had to do it. And my mother said, do what, Aunt Mary? Well, I just had to send. I just had to send one of my messages again this week. And my mother always, you see, she didn't want to ask her who she sent it to. But she had to, see. Because Aunt Mary would sit with the pregnant pause because this is the only thing she ever talked about. And if you're going to talk to her at all, you had to talk about what she was doing. She didn't care what anybody else was doing unless it was sent. At which point she took it in hand. So <laughs> she said, my mother would say, well, who did you send it to, Aunt Mary? Well, Fred McMurray. Must Fred McMurray? Yes, I certainly don't don't approve of the sort of thing. Did you see the terrible movie he made the other day that played down at the Commodore? It was an awful movie, and I thought he was such a nice man, and he made nice family movies. And I went to this picture, and it turns out that he is a murderer, and he had made an alliance, an unholy alliance, with Susan Hayward. And I had to send her one of my messages, too. My mother would say, well, that's nice. And, uh, <laughs> what movie? It doesn't make any difference. What the hell, movie? The, 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 the side of the bad storyteller is to get involved in detail. <laughs> the side of the bad painter is the guy that spends three weeks putting uh, in eyelashes. And he forgets the rest. <laughs> and she says, yes, she said, I just, and I'm so hurt because Mr. McMurray has long been one of my favorites, as you well know. Incidentally, people of that type always speak in the stilted sort of terminology. I guess it's learned from reading tracks. And uh, my mother said, uh, I remember she said, well, what, what, did, uh, what did you send to Mr. McMurray? Because you see, you don't call a sinner Fred. You put the mister on the front, not as a sign of, uh, of a dignity, but as a sign that he is no longer part of your inner circle of friendship. He's not Fred McMurray. He's Mr. McMurray. And uh, so my mother says, well, what did you uh, send to Mr. McMurray? Well, I had to send him one of my messages about sin. Now, I sent Miss, Miss uh, Hayward my message about redemption, because I believe she can be saved, but not Mr. McMurray. My mother says, well, what's going to happen to him? Well, what always happens to sinners? <laughs> She'd leave it up in the air, you know, you got to ask her, well, what? My, I cannot tell you what evil tortures await the sinner, the transgressor, and that was the afternoon. This would go on for 15, 20 minutes, a half an hour. I always look forward to that point because with impunity at that point, I could crawl out from under the day bed, scoot around the corner into the john, take off my shirt, put on a reasonable T-shirt, and go out the back door, and that was the end of the day for me. Although it went on for sometimes three, four weeks for my mother. <laughs> so uh, Aunt, Aunt Mary, you see, was, was, a, was a believer in sin and redemption, and she handed out tracts. Now, almost anybody, if you think this is a crazy, you know, if you think this is a kind of a cuckoo bird, now let me tell you this, there is no person who is in show business, and this is uh, where I have earned my living since I was 
maybe two. There's nobody in show business who do, does not at least on an average of a, once a week get maybe seven or eight tracks in the mail. And all I have never received, now I don't know what, what the connection is, I have never received a tract from a man. Now I'm just, just <laughs> now I don't know, maybe it's, uh, I don't know, maybe it's something in my voice. Because I'm not saying there aren't male tract givers. I personally never received them from men. I received them from uh, nice ladies who start out and say, Dear Sher, I have long admired your work, and I have felt, however, there is one lack. That, and then, you know, you know that there's this thing, see? <laughs> and this is, to me, one of the most, uh, you know, intriguing parts of American life. Because, you see, this is also part of the magic world the belief in having uh, discovered the magical answer, uh, or and the search for it. Only an American could have written Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz and the Yellow Brick Road. And uh, yes, <laughs> only Americans could have created Peanuts, which combines many of those elements, um, usually sub uh, subliminally unconscious even to the guy that writes them. And, uh, and of course, uh, the belief, too, which runs all the way through Peanuts, incidentally, that ineptitude equals somehow innate basic goodness. That's a fascinating American concept, too. That the more inept you are, somehow the more worthy you are. And ineptitude is a sign of otherworldliness. But your, your mind is on good thoughts, beautiful things, doves flying against the sun. And, uh, and every, every, every candidate has to hide the, the basic fact he may not be inept, which would offend a lot of his listeners. Oh, yes, if, if, if it's ever revealed by a candidate that he's an accomplished jet pilot, that <laughs> scares a lot of people. <laughs> he really knows how to do something. It's something that's damn hard to do. And, uh, and so that doesn't fit the American idea of ineptitude uh, and, and the, the belief that the lower the rank you are in whatever organization, the more truthful and honest you are. This goes all the way back to the idea, you know, that, that uh, somehow if a guy came from a log cabin, he would make a better president, which, of course, is highly suspect uh, because uh, you know that now they're even selling presidential log cabin kits. So that uh, you could, yes, you know that in many of the states <laughs> outside of New York, the log cabin has had a fantastic comeback. And uh, particularly in states like Wisconsin, Minnesota, and so on. So it's very easy for a guy to have $72 billion in the bank and still be born in a log cabin. Of course, it's a somewhat elegant log cabin, but uh, nevertheless, it is a log cabin. And so the, uh, but then on the other hand, people are suspect when a guy does come from too low a station. For example, they held it against Truman for years that he had a haberdashery shop. That was held against him as if that per se. And what's worse, it didn't make it. <laughs> so, so we're very, uh, we're, we're very uh, torn. We're ambivalent. You see, on the one hand, we like the guy that rises from low station. But on the other hand, we suspect him because he's too like us. Now, if we could arrange to have a president that appears in a great burst out of a sun spot, 
arrives in a flaming chariot, trailing clouds of golden smoke. I think that's the guy. In fact, <laughs> in fact, the less that the candidate says, the more he'll be applauded today. And uh, and of course, what media has done was to make uh, it's it's foreshortened all time. Media has foreshortened all. Yes, I see. Media has foreshortened all time. In short, if you start out your campaign in February, you are an old face by July. Whereas it used to take maybe 30 years to become an old face on the political scene. That uh, <laughs> and so the, the, the new rule in, in politics is start your campaign five, maybe ten minutes before the convention. Emerges a new brilliant light on the horizon, and uh, that's a, see that's that's what's called the spontaneous coming or the spontaneous generation syndrome. The belief that suddenly one day the true and totally effective candidate will spring out of a rock. Excalibur, and will be able to solve all problems. But if he springs out of the rock too soon, you know, like uh, uh, six or eight months before the uh, before the uh, convention, he's liable to wear out his welcome. I mean, he gets to be an old face on television, in spite of the fact that he is made of pure ivory and has gold eyeballs. <laughs> and so, friends, stand out there in front of that uh, that magic magazine rack, and you will find hundreds of magazines promising that. Next month, there could be a new you. You want your busts larger? No problem. You want them smaller? No problem. You want them to non-exist, self-destruct? No problem. Do you want to be 20 feet tall? No problem. Do you want to be a beautiful... Remember when they used to have beautiful people? Whatever happened to that crowd? Would you think they're still around? No, no, that went out with, the, with the Jackie Kennedy. Although there are still people clinging to that myth. Yes. The wind blows over the wide dark sea. And high in the upper reaches of Parnassus, the oracle waits.
New York. 